series called Before You Go, and we titled it that appropriately because the book of Acts isn't so much about the acts of the apostles I've been sharing with you as much as it is the acts of the Holy Spirit and our need based on, as I shared with you when we first began this series, an old American Express commercial that was promoting the American Express card and it always ended the commercial by saying, and don't leave home without it. Remember that? Yeah. And it always reminded me of, as a believer, I think there's a lot of confusion for people with regard to our relationship with God and especially the Holy Spirit. And so when you study the Bible and you study the Greek language associated with the words, that there's three very distinct relationships that we can enjoy with God. There's the moment that you open your heart to Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he comes into your heart. And in the Greek language, that's spelled E-N, in the English language, I-N, so he comes into our life. And I think most of us are very familiar with that. And then Jesus made a promise to the disciples as they would go into all the world, and he said, and I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And he said that when he would pray to the Father, that he would send the parakletos, the comforter, and he would be with us. And in the Greek language, that's uh, the word para, P-A-R-A. It's where we get our English word parallel. He comes alongside us. And he does that to be a friend to us. He does that to be a comfort to us. He does that to lead us and to guide us into truth. But then there's a very distinct relationship that we see in the book of Acts, and I think it's the one that I know in my own life that I've neglected, and I think in conversations that I've had with not a lot, but a few of you anyway, that have come to that same conclusion in your own life. In the Greek language, it's the word epi or epi, it's E-P-I, and that is to come upon. And what we're seeing in the book of Acts is when the Holy Spirit is moving here, he's not coming into people. He's not even in the sense the expression isn't the with relationship. It is the E-P-P-I, the upon, that the Holy Spirit comes upon you for a very distinct purpose. And so it's not that if someone, I've said this many times, no one has the gift of healing as an office. If you did, shame on you because you could just literally be going to hospitals all day long, right? Just walking by rooms and saying, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk and everybody would be healed if that's, if you had the gift of healing. What you have is you have manifestations of healings where the Holy Spirit chooses in that moment to do something that's miraculous, to draw attention, not to you, but to God, and he heals people. The beauty of that is what Jesus was doing, we see in the book of Acts, the apostles were doing, and we also see that there was now deacons, Stephen being one, and now Philip another. And so then we have people just like me and you throughout then the book of Acts as it continues on today that are filled with the Holy Spirit. He's in us. He is alongside of us, but that we're praying every single day of our life in any circumstance or situation we go into, we go, God, I need you. I, if I start talking, something not good is going to come out. But if God, if the you in me comes out, it could be really good. Have you ever had that kind of discussion with you and God? Uh, and so as I was preparing this week for it, the Lord reminded me of something that I had read about a month ago, and I just loved it. I, I wrote it down as a quote because it really reminds me what the disciples here and the apostles were experiencing in their life where they were having this upon relationship, enjoying that with the Lord. And the little saying said this, it says, I want to be so full of the Holy Spirit that when a mosquito bites me, it flies away singing, there is power in the blood. And, and I thought, man, that is so good. Don't you want that for your life? I don't want that for mine. 
even the mosquitoes and life is full of mosquitoes, right? That could, that can come in the fashion or form of people as well. So as we jump into this, and we'll take a moment here and we'll pray, just remember chapter eight is a continuation of chapter seven. If you recall, Stephen, who started off waiting tables as a deacon, was selected to help take care of these Hellenistic Jewish widows and make sure that they were taken care of. And so he was chosen to become a deacon. And then obviously, then the Holy Spirit began to work in his life in a very profound way that he became, in a sense, a, a theologian for a moment there in time. He preached one sermon, and it was so good, they stoned him after it was over. He went immediately into the presence of God. I think every pastor would hope that would be the way you'd go, is you preach your first sermon, and it's so good, you go right into the very presence of God. But yet, we read in chapter 7 about a man named Saul, who would become the apostle Paul here. And Stephen, obviously, was put to death because of his testimony for the Lord. And it's such a powerful chapter. I always encourage you to go back. He didn't have a Bible. That's the beauty of it. He's just sharing from his heart what he knows and what he's learned about God from the Old Testament, because that's what he's talking about. And they, if you remember, they had accused Stephen of blasphemy, and that is, is grieving God, and that, that he had spoken against God himself, then he'd spoken against Moses, then he'd spoken against the law of Moses, and then at the end, he you know, had spoken against the very temple of God, which Stephen hadn't done any of those things. Those were all lies that were brought against him. And yet, because it was before the Sanhedrin, which Saul was part of the Sanhedrin, very powerful group of religious leaders, they found him worthy of death. And then Saul, uh, again, became the coat rack for those that would stone Stephen to death. And that's how the chapter ended. And so as we'll pray, we'll jump into chapter 8 and then see where this goes from here. And I title it, like I said, there's power in the blood. And if there's power in the blood of Stephen, there's power in the blood of Philip, there's power in the blood of Christ. It's an amazing thing when we think about the power of, of the blood of Christ and what it can do in the world, even today, here in our very midst. And so let's take a moment and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we look forward to jumping into it here. And Lord, we know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by your word. And so grow our faith today, increase our faith, that Lord, when we would leave this place we would love you more. That's always the goal of, of our Bible study is that we would love you more, appreciate you more, understand a little bit more about you, your purposes and your plans. Lord, you have us here for a reason. We, like Esther, we're here for such a time as this. And what a great time when the world seems to be falling apart. Lord, everything that you're doing is falling together. And that includes us, that Lord, you who began that good work are faithful to complete it. So Lord, today, use this time. God, equip us. Lord, help us to see the calling that you've placed upon our life. Help us to see the people, Lord, that you would send us to, to love on and, Lord, to share uh, your word with. God, we want to see the kingdom of heaven expanded through our life. We want to see people come to salvation. We want to see people heal, Lord. We want to be able to pray over people and, and to see miraculous things happen. And, Lord, we believe that's possible because of the power of the blood, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, the, the name above all names. And so, Lord, just help us today as we study your word and be glorified in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I love this chapter because there, there's it's taken me into so many deep studies. I, I'll touch on the surface of things I'm going to go into later with you. One is just demonology of just talking about how are demons in the world today? Who's Satan? What really is the role does he have? Uh, a lot of misconception and you know, a lot of good conversations the last couple of weeks as I've talked with different people about what I'm studying and 
then they have questions we have dialogues about and just really great stuff. But it's, again, it has to almost be a standalone study for that. But you look here and in verse one, it says Saul, who we just said we learned about in chapter seven, was one of the witnesses and it says that he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And so to say that he was consenting would be to put this mildly. He was a voting member of the Sanhedrin. He stood there and he held, he was complicit, you could say, to Stephen's death. He, he stood there, he held the coats of those. And the reason they had, he held their coats is so that they could throw better. They don't have, want to be encumbered in any way, shape or form. This is pure hatred at its finest here. And he didn't pick up a stone, but like I said, he's completely guilty. The Greek word there for approved, it means to be pleased with. And I shared with Terry, if you guys know Terry's one of our ushers, he's in the back there. I, the only way I could give you a picture in my mind's eye of what that pleased with, that look, is one day I was with Terry and Terry was driving down the road and he was going, have you ever seen Terry's truck? It's like even looks fast. It's got racing stripes. He's into NASCAR. That's why. And he's going down the road and he's going fast, like way too fast. And all of a sudden he sees a cop and the cop puts his lights on and he pulls over this other car, not Terry. And as Terry goes by, Terry has that look on his face like, he's pleased. He's very pleased. You don't, yeah, you guys, can you relate to that? You're pleased. Shame on us. Who would ever be pleased that the cop would pull over another car? But it's that look of just like, you are, and it's like an evil please. I just made that up. I told Terry I was going to do that. I was going to use it. He did not do that. That's really myself. Okay. I just, I was like the apostle Paul going, I knew a man once last weekend. I'm just going to confess this because it's good to confess sin before people so that you can be healed. I don't know if I'll be healed in this lifetime of this. I might sometimes drive a little too fast. I just, but hey, shut up. He's my friends. Yeah. The friends that drive with me all the time. No, but so my wife and I, we were last weekend, we went to Walnut Creek and uh, Jason was here uh, filling in and uh, we went up there and I had to take a trailer because we needed to bring back some furniture for our other kids that are living with us that bought a house. And uh, so I told my wife, we, we always pray when we get in the car and pray because my wife will get mad at me. I don't know why. So I just like the Lord, but I, so I stopped and I go, okay, Jesus, I need your help. And I'll tell her this. I go, Lord, just help me just drive in a way that my wife is good with it and she's okay, that she doesn't panic. And she'll start putting the brakes on the cars like four miles in front of us. So I'm complaining about stuff. So forgive me. But anyway, so I'm praying, okay, Lord. So I told her it's going to take an extra hour and a half because I'm pulling a trailer and you're supposed to go 55 with the trailer, right? So it takes like normal, like four hours to get there from here to almost San Francisco. And I got this trailer. I'm great. This is going to it took me like four hours and 15 minutes with the trailer. And I was driving along and, and I was trying to go slow. And then I was going less than the flow of traffic. It was more dangerous. So this is what I was telling myself. I just want you to know. So I, and I thought if I ever get pulled over, I said, your officer, I go, I know I'm going fast. I go, but I was just trying to keep up with the other trailers. And there were, seriously, they were all going like really fast. So I was loving it, to be honest with you. Cause I was like, yeah. And I just was with the flow of traffic and we got there in really good time. But I wasn't talking about Terry. That's I just said all that to tell you it's me. And I get that look. So when the cop comes and I like, yes, and I know it's wrong. And I said, God, forgive me. And I, but I have yet to be able to pray honestly, Lord, I wish that was me. I just can't get there. Okay. But, but I get what Paul's doing. I totally understand it. 
The heart is wicked, right? It's deceitful above all things. Not just my own, I get that, my own heart above all, who can know it? Philippians 3, 6, Paul says of himself though, he says, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, he said, oh, I obeyed the law without fault. He was into the law. You broke the law. If you've ever been to Israel, to think about in Jerusalem, you can't even see Damascus. Damascus is over 200 miles away. And the Bible says that Paul went all the way to Damascus and he drugged men and women by their hair back to Jerusalem to try them for blasphemy against the Jewish faith. This is how zealous that he was against Jesus Christ. It tells us in verse one there, it goes on, it says, then a great wave of persecution. And this began because of, of Stephen's death. So something began to happen at this point. And one commentator said it so well. He said, it's like a shark frenzy. Like there was blood in the water. Like Stephen's blood was like, like sharks then seeing it and just going on this frenzy because the attacks against the church, they were venomous at this point. It says, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And it's interesting to me when you said, it says all the believers except the apostles that they were scattered. And, and it makes sense to me in this regard. Now, the apostles who were first started off as disciples, was there ever a time when they had fled out of fear? And we go, absolutely. On the night Jesus was betrayed, you can read it for yourself in Matthew 26. So here's Jesus telling them on the night that he was betrayed, he said, the shepherd is going to be struck. And he said, what? The sheep are going to scatter. And then what does Peter tell him? He goes, I'm just paraphrasing this. He goes, Lord, he goes, everybody might desert you, but I won't. I'll stand with you. Even if everybody else runs away in fear, not me, I'll even die with you if that's what it takes. And he, Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, Peter. Sometimes I think Jesus looks at me that way too. And he goes, before a cock crows, you'll have denied me, not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter's still denying it, right? And so I, so I get that, but I believe that's what happened with him. Then you think about the cross. John's gospel tells us who of the disciples were at the foot of the cross. There was only one. Who was it? John. Everybody else fled out of fear. And I think in that sadness and that sorrow, and that understanding in their heart, they're going, you know what? We've done it, but we're not going to do it again, even if it means dying for the faith, that we're going to stand here. And think about what would have communicated to the world had they fled. It was that, that they really didn't believe what they believed, right? They really weren't sure they were cowards. And that's not how they wanted to be known as cowards. They wanted to be known as men who stood for truth, who stood up for what they believed to be true. And even if that meant dying for it. And yet, so they stayed in Jerusalem, but it says everybody else fled. And I can understand that they were probably young in their faith. They weren't really sure. Again, it wasn't like you and I have it's so much better. We have a Bible that's written down. We can go back and we can read it. They were going off what was being told to them. And for them, it was very confusing living in real time. That's why they needed the Holy Spirit. It's why we need the Holy Spirit here. And so as they did, like I said, it probably been about, I don't know, seven months prior when Jesus had been crucified, then resurrected from the dead. So this was very early on in the life of the church. But one of the things that's interesting to me is the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 8, 28, and he says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God, 
and are called according to his purpose for them. I wish in my life and your life, I wish that we were so sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, but oftentimes, would you agree that sometimes it takes discomfort to get us to move from where we're at to where we need to be? And and this is what happened in the church. Think about it. I've shared this. If If I didn't live in Bakersfield and I had my choice of any place on the planet that I could live, I would live in Israel of all the places. And there's a few reasons why. One, just because I know that after I die, that's where I'm going to be again someday with you, right? We're going to come back with the Lord, right? And we're going to be, we're going to come on the Mount of Olives and we're going to go into Jerusalem. So I want to go there and write my name on a tree and then be able to go back and go, hey, I was here before. And I, it's weird things that you think, but I have when I go to my favorite place in Israel to go always is the Temple Mount because I know that'll still be there. And I think that we're going we're gonna to go come back to this place. I can go visit someplace that I'm going to visit again after I leave this earth. That is so I love, I, and I get it, and it's so rich in, in biblical history, right? Wherever you go, it's all about God. It's all about Jesus. That Israel, just the beauty of it. Some of the best, if you like, you go, oh, I like the beach. Great. Go to the Mediterranean. Nicest beaches in the world right there. Like the mountains. Hey, Mount Hermon. It's one of the, it's even got snow skiing. It's got everything. And so I'm going, man, I would love it. And I could see why they're comfortable. They go, we love it. This is, matter of fact, what, is, what does the Bible tell us about Jerusalem? It's the only city that God calls his own, right? Why would they want to go? You go, why would they? Because Jesus said, what? Go where? Into all the world. Start in Jerusalem, right? Until what? Until they don't want to hear the message any longer. And that's what we're seeing here. They don't want to hear the message any longer. He said, okay, then go to Judea. Go to the next town. Then go to where? Samaria. And go to where? The uttermost parts of the world. Like I said, it ended up in Bakersfield, California. Thank God people were obedient to the Word of God. But God is using all those things. And I say that hopefully to encourage you. Maybe you're in a difficult place today, and you go, man, I don't know why I'm in this place. I don't either. But I know God's there with you, and I know that He's using that situation. It might not look like it to you, but that's the beauty of God's plan. It's eternal, right? We, We are finite beings. He's infinite, and His wisdom is infinite, and everything He does for His glory and for our good. And that's where we've got to trust that. Even when you're going through difficult things, even when you're facing not just persecution, but martyrdom, to die for what you know to be true. And this is what's happening. Remember back to chapter 7, Stephen looks up into the heavens and what? He just has this look on his face. And he's just like Jesus, he's going, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Don't hold it against them. His heart's so full of love. And you go, it's not because he read that. It's because the Holy Spirit is in him. The fruit of God's Spirit, what is it? Galatians 5 tells us it's love. Personified in what? In joy and peace and goodness and gentleness and kindness, self-control. You go, man, the fruit of God's Spirit, because of a relationship that we can have with God when he comes into our life to transform and to change us. So then in verse 2, it goes on, it says, And some devout men came, and they buried Stephen with great mourning. And this verse, I can tell you, it frustrated me to no end, because I would read commentary on it. And they go, they're devout. The word devout there, it, it doesn't mean that they were Christians. Devout just means God fears. Remember when Jesus was crucified, right? Who came and got his body? Remember, it was Joseph of Arimathea, right? And who else? And Nicodemus, when I, this tells you, when I got saved, we called him Nick at night because Nickelodeon, Nick at night. And it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nick at night. They came and they got the body of Jesus. They weren't Christians. They were what? They were God-fearers. They were devout men of God. They had a, a fear of God. And so a lot of people go, and I, so I read that and I go, okay, 
that's good. But then to say something just so short-sighted, to say Christians wouldn't cry. They wouldn't mourn. There wouldn't be great mourning at the loss of their loved one because they'd know that their loved one, what does the Bible say? To be absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. You go, you'd just be happy for him. And I'm like, really? Someone actually believed that? You go, no, what would you believe? What would you understand? You go, is that, yes, it's heaven's gain anytime a believer goes home to be with the Lord, but it's our loss. There's still a sting with death. That's our final enemy. I miss my mom and dad. I can't, I'm glad I have phone conversations. I can go back and I can listen to a saved message on my phone. I can watch a video or something. That's what I have, but I don't have the ability to call my dad up and hey, dad, how you doing today? Hey, mom, how's it going? That, that's gone. And you go, there's great mourning and it's okay. I wanted to stress that because I can't believe that there's any believer out there that would ever say you're wrong to there to be great mourning when you lose somebody that you love. No, that just means you love. I remember when C.S. Lewis, I, I love C.S. Lewis, like many of you, when his wife, when Joy died and he pinned these words, he said, why love? if it hurts them. And that's why a lot of people don't want to love. Why open yourself up to the risk? Because there's so much pain that comes with it. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, and he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Why did he cry? Because he saw what death does. It wasn't just death in the sense of the temporal sense, it's the eternal sense, to see dead people that are going to be dead for all eternity because they're going to reject him as Savior and Lord. They're going to reject the power that's in the blood. And so you read this and you go, wow, there was great mourning for Stephen. And, and I love the fact that I, I, we have a God that understands. The verse Hebrews, again, tells us that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He said, in all things, he was tempted, but without sin. He, he knows what we're going through, and he comes right alongside us. He's there and he's in us. Verse 3 goes on, it says, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. That word destroy there, havoc, in some of your translations in the Greek language, I couldn't even tell you how to pronounce this, but it's spelled E-L-U-M-A-I-N-E-T-O. Your guess is as good as mine. But what it's applied to there is wild beasts and lions. When they ravage something or they wreak havoc on it, you could say it's like they just, they're tearing it with their teeth, right? And that's the expression it's giving with regard to the Apostle Paul, what he was doing when he would go into a home. That was his heart, his mindset, that you know what we're dealing with here. Galatians 1.13, Paul in his own words, he writes this, what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion and how I violently persecuted God's church, I did my best to destroy it. That's what these guys were up against. And you think about, he didn't just consent to it. Like I said, he's now like that shark in the open waters where there's blood in the water and he's on a feeding frenzy. Verse four goes on, it says, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. And so my question is, did they have the New Testament? No, it wasn't even written yet. What were they sharing? They were sharing their heart. They were sharing what they knew from their experience with Jesus, right? Remember in John 14, on the night that he's being betrayed, He's sitting with the disciples and he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be broken. He goes, if you believe in God, believe in me also. For in my father's house are many mansions, right? He was telling them, hey, we're going to be back together. We're, 
there's good news here. You're not under the law any longer. You couldn't fulfill the law. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is what? Death, yeah. And all have what? Sin. So we're all guilty before God. They got that. They understood. They didn't have to have somebody tell them. What they want to know, is there a way out? Because if I've broken the law, as Jesus said, if you're going to live by the law, you're going to die by the law. For the letter of the law, what? Kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here, these Jews were rejecting it, right? Because Stephen had just told him, just like Peter, he said, you guys murdered your Messiah. And he goes back through it, right? And he says, you have continually rebelled against God. Go all the way back to the prophets. Every time God sent a prophet to you, he sent Joseph to you. What do you do? You throw him in a dungeon. You try to kill him. You send Moses to you. You reject him. You send David to you. He's on the run from his own son. Every prophet, they came, you either killed him, threw him in jail. You would not listen to anything that they had to say. And he goes, and then you murdered the very Messiah that God sent to save you. If you're a religious person, that would tick you off, wouldn't it? You go, how dare you talk to me like that? I know I've memorized the five first five books of the Bible. What have you done? And you go, I got Jesus, right? <laughs> I got that, that he came to give us life. And I put my hope and my trust in him. But it says, but they, believers who are scattered, they preach the good news. They were teaching people, sharing, hey, guess what Jesus has done for me? What he's done for you. That's what God has called us to do. You don't have to be a theologian to share Jesus. You just have to have a testimony. As Paul's going, hey, what is he saying? He's going, I was a persecutor of the church. I tried to destroy the church. He was just telling the truth about his life. He goes, but Jesus saved me. He knocked me off my high horse. He blinded me. And then men prayed for me. And I love that. We'll get to that. It's such a wonderful story here in the book of Acts. He goes, and then I got it. And I determined that the life that I would now live in the flesh, I would live for God. I would live for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. And was it perfect? No. No, he still had failings. Still, we read in the book of Acts, what's going to happen? Him and Barnabas are going to have a falling out, right? Over John Mark. He's still human. He wasn't perfect. Only God is perfect. But he dedicated his life to, to seek to do the will of God, to pray continually as he'd get up every day. Is that you don't just go, hey, I read my Bible today. Yeah, okay, we all read a Bible. You go, what is it doing for me? It doesn't do anything until I go, God, I need your strength. I need your power. I'm about to get around a whole bunch. I love that one where the guy goes, Lord, I haven't had a bad thought yet. I haven't sinned against you. It's been a great day, but in five minutes, I'm going to get up. <laughs> and anything's possible once I get out of this bed. And you go, I think we can relate to that. Then praying, God, I need the Holy Spirit to come upon me. I need your Spirit upon me so that you would lead me to the where you want me to go, who you want me to share with, and I could be about your business today, that I might decrease, that you might increase, as John would say himself. And so they were just evangelizing. Again, they were announcing the good news. And again, the message of God's mercy. What is mercy? Not getting what we deserve. That's why Jesus came to, so that we didn't get what we deserved and we could experience grace. And grace is what? Getting what we don't deserve. Amen. And this is what, it meant something to people. They're good because they were not Jews. They thought, oh, God only loves the Jews, right? Jerusalem, it's his city. You look what he's done. He protects them. He goes with them. He tabernacles with them there. But now we have a chance. We, they go, yeah, they rejected the message. And now God's going, I want you to come. You go, really? But we can't go back and be perfect. It's okay. Jesus was perfect. He's going to trade places with you. That's what the cross was about. He took all your sin, past, present, future sin. 
and he nailed it to the cross, and, he, and, and then he gave you his perfect righteousness. So when God looks at you now, he sees you through his, the blood of his son in perfection. And now you're going to spend the rest of your life learning how to believe that, because guess what? There's not a one of us in here that is completely sold out to that thought. Because we have an enemy of our soul that comes and goes, hey, what'd you do yesterday? Oh, what'd you do? So what are we doing right now? Some of you are shopping at Costco. Let's get, get my work on my, hey, it's not me you stand before. You. So how did he know? I don't. It was a guess. Okay. So no, I didn't know. But here they are. They're announcing good news. It's not the word preached or ordained. That's important that you understand this. Because you could say, I'm not, and I hear people, they go, well, I'm not a preacher and I'm not an ordained minister. Nor was Stephen, nor was Philip. They were just men that were obedient to the call of God in their life. As persecution went, it drove them out from Jerusalem. Wherever they went, they just went about what? Testifying of the mercy of God. You have a story to tell. If you're in Christ Jesus, if God has saved you, he saved you from something to himself. We have a story to share, and other people are interested in it, believe it or not. Don't believe what on TV. The world is messed up. You can see that on TV. But people are looking for answers. They're looking for hope. To think that you go, hey, we can't fix everything, but hey, guess what? Jesus can. And you go, and what do we do? We live in light of his coming. You go, so we don't have to go about fixing it. We don't have to right every wrong. We don't have to undo everything. We put our hope and our trust in him. Most people get this concept to believe that where do people get saved? Where do a lot of people think people get saved? Church, yeah. That's the last place people get saved. Church is really about where people who are saved come to gather, to pray together, to pray for one another, to read the Word of God, to get marching orders, you might say, so we can go back out and do God's will this week, right? It's like this. There's a bumper sticker. It probably says it best. W-O-N is the word what? One by O-N-E. One by one. Yeah. Look around. Look at all the people that we know, you and me, that we know, and people that we don't know. What, what's the population of Bakersfield right now, city? It's like 400, 400,000. And then with the county, we're like, what, a million? We're almost pushing a million. We are this close to getting a cheesecake factory. Hey, no, I called. Hey, I'm just telling I called. Hey, man, you know, what is it going to take for Bakersfield to get a cheesecake factory? And my wife would like an anthropology. Let's just ask that right now, clothing store. And maybe Crate and Barrel, if we don't have that or whatever. So they go, oh, you have to, million population. Got to have a million. Okay. So wherever that's at. There's plenty of people, is my point. Is there plenty of people for us to minister to in the name of Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. Just whoever God leads you to, whoever you bump into along the way, the highways, the byways of life, that, that we get past it. You know what? I can tell you this. There's a God-shaped void in your heart that only Jesus is going to fill. You can stuff it with the world. You can stuff it with stuff, and it's going to come up empty. It might satisfy you. The Bible says sin satisfies, but how long? Millisecond. And then, you and then you have to go, what, bigger and better in that regard. Your sin has to get deeper and darker and uglier because that other thing it just won't satisfy you any longer. And Jesus came to what? To set us free from all that. And that's what people were hearing, the message. And they go, wow. I love that. What a difference that makes. And so as we go forward, again, they didn't go out with the Bible. Like I said, they went out with the words of Jesus that were in their heart, which leads us to, when you think about this, Luke 6.45 says, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. 
And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. What's the old expression? Garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. You go, and so part of what we're doing today is we feed on the Word of God. We read the Word of God. We study the Word of God. We take in it. Jesus said, man can't live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that we see his word like fresh bread, and we, we're eating it every day. We're consuming it, and we're letting it consume us. Like Greg Gloria, I love that expression. He said, it's not how much you get into the Bible. It's how much of the Bible gets into you. That's what really matters the most here. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He also said in Matthew 6, 2, wherever your treasure is, there your desires of your heart be also. So persecution, it, it has two things, I, I think, that are really positive about it. One, it has a way of promoting that which it seeks to destroy. Persecution has a way of promoting that which it seeks to destroy. I'll use this as an example. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican here. I think it's pretty safe to say there's a certain group of people out there that are trying to destroy Donald Trump, okay? They, they could say they're persecuting him. And what are they doing? As they're persecuting him, what is it doing to him? In one sense, it's making him more popular with many people, right? We just saw in the Iowa caucuses, right? You go, wow, he had the best showing ever of any race. And you go, why is that? And you go, part of, because the Bible's true. When you persecute somebody so much and you start going public with it and you just keep persecuting, some people, they go, they see that it's like advertisement. It's a promotion, right? That's why the Bible says when you, if you're going to have an issue with that, the best thing you can do is what? Zip it. Don't say anything right? Then to keep promoting it. But that's what persecution does. Persecution, the world thinks we're going to persecute and that's going to shut them up. Nope. Does the very opposite. It promotes the very thing that they are trying to destroy. And then the second thing, persecution always draws out what's in you. So do people crumble? Yes, they do. Many believers do not share. They'll go, my, the Lord hasn't called me to do that. I'm, I go, that's not true. But if that's the lie you keep telling yourself, you go, but I, because I could lose my job or I could lose this relationship. I think about the Apostle Paul, who was Saul. Many believe that his wife left him when he became a believer, because being part of the Sanhedrin, he was part of a, probably a very well-to-do family. And she basically, under Jewish law, she would have tore her clothes as if he was dead to her. Her family would have taken her back in. I can see why Paul would say, man, I've learned to do what? I got to forget the things which are behind. Some people believe that maybe his wife died. Still the same thing. He suffered loss. He understood what this loss was about in his life. And it draws out, like I said, the things that are inside of you. And that's true for them. It's true for you and I today. But thank God today that their faith was real. Amen. Because of it, we're all here today because it went from generation to generation. And so we do know this. What was true for them be true for me and you today. Sharing your faith is a deliberate act. It's not an accident. It's something you set out to do. It's proactive that it becomes your prayer on a day-to-day -day basis. And I hope and pray that you're praying like I am. I go every day, Lord, use me today. I ask my grandchildren, I've shared this with you. Every time I see them, they come home from school. Whenever they come over, I'll ask them. I say, hey, I go, who are you able to show kindness to today? And they're like, and they, and my oldest, she's so funny because she knows every day. So I get in the car and she goes, I know. And I go, and she goes, today I got to, and I just, I love watching their countenance change. When they go from, oh, we did this to going, I got to do this. And obviously I'm leading to, to the place of going, Hey, what I want you to do is find a way to share 
ask them if they know Jesus as the greatest act of kindness. Because you think about this, the greatest act of kindness any of us could ever show to another human being is to tell them about the love of Jesus. Because heaven and hell are real places. And they're going to spend eternity in one of those two places. And how, for the love of God, could you and I ever look in a mirror again and go, I have all these people in my life, all these people, in 400,000 people in Bakersfield, and all these people that don't know Jesus, and I can go to sleep really good every night going, I'm a kind person, but I didn't share Jesus with any. I go, really? And, and because the fruit of the Spirit is kindness, but it's love. If we loved him, we really loved him, would we risk the pain and the hurt and the things that come with being rejected? But see, we love comfort. So I get this in the book of Acts. They didn't want to leave Jerusalem. Yeah, they were right there with the temple. They were there where God was popular. And all of a sudden, persecution comes and it drives them out to do what? To do God's will. Because it was Jesus who said, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he said, hey, be with you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Wow, that kind of relationship. Verse 5 goes on, it says, Philip, for example, he says, he went to the city of Samaria and he told the people there about the Messiah. And I love this because we read in, in John's gospel and other gospel accounts, Jesus also went to Samaria as well. Remember the woman at the well, right? And you go, so what's the deal with Samaritans? You go, Samaria was in the northern kingdom. There was, remember, it was 721 BC. The Assyrians came and they took the 10 northern tribes captive, took them away into captivity. But they left, if you get the story, they left the lower middle class and the poor, the people there that they didn't see as any value to the Assyrian nation. They left them there in the northern kingdom. And then what they did, which makes this so fascinating about what we see when you think about the life of, of the children of Israel, the children of Israel, the only people group on this planet that have been able to maintain their identity, even in captivity and not be, because this is what happened in the Assyrians. The Assyrians then would take all the other groups that they had dominated and they would move people into the Northern kingdom so that they would intermarry with these lower middle and lower class Jews that live there. So the Jews, the pure Jews, hated the Samaritans because they saw them as what? As half-breeds, right? They saw them as the low-life scum. Matter of fact, the rabbis even taught that the Samaritans were nothing more than the fodder that, that was used to ignite the hells of fire. You talk about prejudice. You go, so this is the strong hatred there, right? But Jesus, think about this, because anybody that you talk to— I, it, somebody else has already planted a seed. Paul said this, right? He was, they were arguing about baptism. They go, I want to be baptized by so-and-so, and I don't want to be baptized by so-and-so. And what did he say? Paul goes, man, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys, because if you're fighting over what man is going to baptize you, you're missing the whole point here. He goes, because one guy waters, one guy plants, but God gives the increase. And he goes, so we know that Jesus was there first. And this woman at the well, remember, she went and told everybody in her city, and the whole city came out. And remember, they knew that, that who she was, and they said, we're not going out because of you. But Jesus said, you came out because of her. He gave her all the credit. And Jesus had planted the seed. Now Philip goes there, and he's doing what? He's now reaping a harvest where he's never sown. It's not your job to save people, is my point. 
Your job and my job is to water and to plant, water and to plant, and God, when he desires, he will open up their hard mind and they will say, by an act of their own free will, they will say, I choose Jesus. And Jesus goes, and I choose you. And they'll be saved in that moment. So it's not, oh, I have to win them. Otherwise, you go, no, you water, you plant, you water, you plant. And God, in his perfect timing, just like he did in your life and my life at the very perfect moment in time, just like Galatians says, when Jesus was born in this world, through a bondservant, through a woman, the perfect moment in time, they get saved. And so, again, we rejoice in that, right? As you look at this, again, I'm jumping ahead here. Verse 6, it says, the crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs that he did. Now, one of the neat things about this, and it's important that you understand this, miracles aren't limited to healings like causing the blind to see or causing the lame to walk. Oftentimes, miracles will come in the form of a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, or just the expression of God's word going forth. That's how people's lives are being transformed here. You think about how many of your parents here today? Have you ever had a, this moment? Maybe you've even said this. You were talking to your children, and they actually listened to you and acknowledged what you were saying was true. And you had this moment, and you like raised your hand, you went, praise God, it's a miracle. You do that as a parent, right? It's like that. And you go, hey, people hear the word, and they respond, and you go, it's a miracle. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. You actually listened to what I said. You go, awesome. That's, those can be miracles, too. They're not just sign gifts, not just where we see a healing of some sort that went forth. But here's a verse, and this is one I'm going to come back to later and walk through it because people are asking as they're studying this. It says, Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, you hear a lot about deliverance ministries, right? And you go, should that be a specialized ministry? Well, you have to go back to the Bible. You go, was deliverance ministry ever specialized? And you go, no, deliverance ministry is part of being born again. God delivered us, what, out of darkness into his marvelous light. How did he do it? It wasn't because you saw, hey, on Tuesday night, they're having a deliverance service over at this place, and they say, oh, we're going to cast out the demons and all that kind of stuff. You go, let's just look at what does the Bible say. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 through 25, it says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogue. So pay attention. Don't miss this, because there's so much power in the blood. Power in the blood. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. It says, large crowds followed him wherever he went, people from Galilee, the ten towns of Jerusalem, from all over Judea, from the east of the Jordan River. What was Jesus doing when people got healed? What was he doing? We just read. He was teaching. He was teaching. He was teaching. What was he doing? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of God, right? Okay, Jesus, right? So what are we proclaiming for healing? Jesus, the name of Jesus. Is there power in the name of Jesus? Yes. 
Yes, in Jesus' name. When we pray, we, we're praying that. Hey, amen. In Jesus' name, because that's the authority. There, there's not a, no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, right? And God's given to him, Philippians 2 says, a name that's above every other name. It's the name of Jesus, what? Everything in heaven and earth and under the earth is what? Is going to bow and confess what? Jesus is Lord. So what do we do? We go, man, I would love to see miracles go forth. I would love to see people healed. I would love to see demons cast out of people. My question to you is if Jesus was casting out demons and Stephen was casting out demons and Philip was casting out demons, do you think, did they just leave? Do you think there's demons still in the world today? Yeah, but, but we don't even talk about it, right? And I want to read this to you. John Corson in his commentary, it was really interesting. He said, have we allowed psychology to shift the attention away from demonic activity with terms like psychosis, syndrome, dysfunction, and disorder? Are we just labeling things differently? But really, it's demonic. It's interesting when you think about, again, what Jesus said. I want you to think about teaching because this is, you want to see people get set free? I do. How, the greatest freedom is when they go from being dead to life, right? You, you raise the dead. When you share Jesus with people and they get saved, you raise the dead. That's what you did. They were dead in their trespasses and sin. Jesus made them alive together in Christ Jesus, right? Why do we not think that is so amazing, right? That's what drives us to sharing them with people because we're going, my gosh, this is awesome. So look at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. He said, Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. And when the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. That's important. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority. Remember, everybody else would go and they go, and the prophet said, and guys of old said, God said in the old days, and Jesus walks in, he goes, and I declare to you. And they go, what? I said, I say. And they're going, whoa, he, he speaks as, like he's got authority. And that's what the Jews were mad at. He claims to be equal with God. He did. And, and Jehovah's Witness, he never said that. He says it all through every gospel account, right? It says, so the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He was telling the truth. But what does Jesus do? It says, but Jesus reprimanded him. He said, be quiet. Come out of that man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then he came out of him. His amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly, it has such authority. Even the evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. So my question is, when the apostles were casting out demons, were they doing that in their own name? Were they doing it with their own superiority? Were they doing it with their own eloquence of speaking? What were they doing? They were proclaiming the word of God. They were proclaiming the word of God. They were sharing the word of God in Jesus' name. And they were praying in Jesus' name. And people were being what? Set free. People were being healed. People were being saved. And you go, man, we need to recapture that, you know, a little bit, right? And so, again, how does Jesus deliver people? That's my question today. How does he deliver people? I'm not going to let you go until you answer this. We can stay here all day. My wife's out of town. I got nowhere to go. Yeah. He spoke the word. 
aren't you glad we, when we remember we studied Lazarus at the tomb, right? What if Jesus just walked up to the tomb and go, hey, come out. Who would have come out? Every dead thing. Yeah, that would have been cool though, right? But he's a Lazarus, come forth. The word of God. The word of God is living, you guys. It's powerful. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. God's going, use it. Don't get caught up in psycho babble stuff. Man, just give people the word of God. And they go, oh, I don't believe that. It's not, I don't care. It's not, here's what God's word says. And all of a sudden, do you think Saul cared? But no, what happened? He saw the word of God being lived out in people's lives, right? He heard the word of God go forth. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That haunted him. That haunted him. Until what? Until he got saved. Saul, why do you kick against the goats? Why are you going against God and everything he has to say? Now, think of this. J Jesus in the temptation of the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. How did Jesus fight off the devil? Get away from me. Stop it. Stop it. You're not real. Stop it. I got things. I'm... No, what did he do? It is written. It is written. It is written, right? How are you going to defeat the devil? The Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. How are you going to? You stand on the promises of God. You stand on the word of God. When he brings, he can bring what? Truth to you. And what's the truth? You're a sinner. That's <laughs> right. And guess what? Jesus came to save sinners, which I am. Paul says he's the chief, but you guess what? I'm the chief. What's he going to do then? He says he's going to flee because he's going to go after a target that will believe his lie. And what was the biggest lie? Go all the way back to Genesis. It was the lie to Adam and Eve. Hey, if you get knowledge, if you have plenty of knowledge, then you don't need God anymore because you'll be like him, right? And that's what the enemy's telling us all the time. But those who are dependent upon God, they go, mm -hmm. I need Jesus. I need Jesus a lot. I need Jesus every day of my life, every waking minute of my life. I can do nothing apart from him. But see, sadly, in all of our lives, mine included, there's those brief moments in time we, we do a lot of stuff on our own apart from God because God's given us common sense, right? Uh, we make all kinds of, we, we're, the enemy is so subtle in our lives. But to be dependent upon God, to truly be dependent upon God and life-changing. And guess what? We can all have it. Yes, you have the end. You can have that today. You go, Jesus, I'm a sinner. You're a savior. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Guess what? He will forgive you of your sin. He will come into your life. Will you know that he's with you? Yeah, because the Holy Spirit will be right there, para, parallel, right alongside of you. And he will quicken things in your mind. And he will quicken God's word as you read it. And he will direct your path. Lean not on your understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your path. But the most exciting, I think, in that regard is the ep, is the upon that God would use me and he would use you. You know how it is when you do something for somebody that's selfless. There's just some deep satisfaction in your life. And to think that God would use our lives, that we'd go, God, I, I want to live for you. I want to do your bidding. I want to do your will. And he, then he gives you in those moments, he comes upon you and you sense not just the peace of God, but the power of God. That's what we need to be praying for. There's a big city out there that is yet to be reached. And so verse eight then closes with that. And he goes, and then great joy came to that city. Does it make sense why? Yeah. When Jesus gets lifted up, when Jesus gets exalted, man, I'm telling you, that's good news. That's good news in any city, right? 
we bought into the lie, I believe, in so many ways. Oh, everybody goes to church. If everybody goes to church, we're running in a too tight of a circle. If all your friends are Christians, man, get ready for some persecution because the only way God's going to get you out of it is he's going to have something happen. I, mean, I get it. We all like comfort, but he'll drive us out of our comfort to get us to a place where he wants to use us to expand his kingdom, to glorify him. It's like even what Jesus told Peter, right? Because he was arguing with, about, was John, John going to be alive when Jesus returned? And he said, what's that to you, Peter? He said, Peter, men are going to come along and they're going to take you by the hand. They're going to lead you to places you don't even want to go. And I will show you the death by which you will die to glorify me. Dying? Yeah, dying always glorifies God. Dying to myself, living for him. Dying physically will glorify God because to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. He says, your death day is better than your birthday. Because your death day, you're going to be home. You're going to be with him. Like I said, and when you get there, you're going to go, man, what was I holding on to Bakersfield for? But man, I, with all my heart, I pray you know, as we go from this place today, that we go in the power of the blood, that you're under the blood of Jesus. You're forgiven because him dying on the cross, taking my place and your place, you are free. And Jesus said, he who has the son is free and he who has the son is free indeed. And you'd live in that freedom. You'd walk in that freedom. You'd enjoy that freedom. And that freedom would become something that when you're talking with other people, you can't help. You're, you're going to, whatever's in your heart is going to come out. Whatever you're into is going to come out. And the key is, then, is just get more into Jesus because where people are set free, you just study it for yourself. It was, he was teaching the Word of God. Where the Word of God was going forth, the Word of God was going forth, the Word of God was going forth. And that doesn't mean as a preacher, that just means sharing. Because again, talking about Philip and talking about Stephen here, two guys that were just sharing their heart, sharing what they loved about Jesus, sharing that openly with other people. And it was changing people's lives. Your testimony, believe it or not, it will change people's lives when you point people to Jesus because everybody's looking for a better way. And guess what? Right now, Jesus said, pray, beseech the Lord of the harvest. He said, for the harvest is plentiful, but what? The labors are few. I think you'd agree with me. Is the harvest plentiful right now? It's a mess out there, right? It should be easy pickings for people to go along offering hope, right? Offering peace and offering joy. And all that's found where? In Jesus, in the power of the blood. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for this church. Lord, I, I pray, God, with all my heart that, Lord, we would just, as we study your word, that you would become so much more clear to us, that we would understand the height and the width and the depth of your love for us, because, Lord, then nothing else in this world would even matter to us. All that would matter is, Lord, what matters to you? What matters to you is, is lost people, broken people, sinful people. For God, you love this world so much that you gave your only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anybody here, if there's anybody listening today that has yet to receive you, Lord, let this be the day where they open their heart to you and invite you in and experience what it is to have you with them. And then, Lord, for the rest of us, that, God, we would be praying like never before with fervency, Lord, come upon me, Lord, come upon us, that we might glorify you with every conversation we have, with every deed that we do this week. God, be magnified. That, that's our hope. It's our joy. It's our prayer as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.